I want to talk to you today about the joy of the resurrection. Good Friday is a day that brought incredible sadness to all of the followers of the Lord. It was the day he died on the cross, a day that it grew dark at midday. All the disciples, all of them except John, fled, filled with confusion, despair, hopelessness, helplessness. But on Sunday morning, that all changed. That sadness changed to joy. Here in David's words is a description of what happened early on that Sunday morning. Psalm 30:11. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. The resurrection is the pivotal point of Christianity. It's the foundation of what everything we believe stands on. Paul describes it in these words, and his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on the right hand in the heavenly realms. Did you see that last line? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in his heavenly realm. So did the resurrection really happen? Well, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Henry Lytton writes, what does it all rest upon? What is the foundational fact on which the structure has been reared in all its audacious and fascinating beauty? What is the fact, if there be any, the removal of which would be fatal to the edifice? And the answer is that our Lord's resurrection from the dead is one such fact. It is the foundation on which all truth and Christian creed that is distinctively Christian and not merely theistic really rest. Jesus referred to his resurrection during his ministry. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I referred last week to the prophecies about the crucifixion. They are almost incredible to fathom. Let me briefly just mention some from Psalm 22 that I previously mentioned, but I want to emphasize them because they are so pivotal in understanding the resurrection. Psalm 22 was written 1,000 years, almost 1,000 years before the crucifixion took place. And yet this Psalm, Psalm 22, says the chief priests would mock him on the cross that soldiers would gamble for his clothing, that Christ's disjointed body, his thirst, his failing heart, his pierced hands and feet, his humiliating exposure, that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads, Dogs have surrounded me. A brand of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for them. You know what's so amazing about this? These words were written 300 years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. It didn't even exist. There are so many reasons to believe in Jesus. The amazing accuracy and the fulfillment of those prophecies lead you 
to believe and accept the fact of his resurrection. So all four of the Gospels tell us the story of the resurrection. They all reach a climax. It is the moment that they most want to describe. But before Matthew tells of the resurrection, he tells us how the earth reacted to Jesus' death. Matthew gives us a testimony here of Jesus' death. Matthew 27, 51. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. But after the resurrection, Jesus' disciples had come up against a blank wall. They didn't, they hadn't been able to fit Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 with the crucifixion and everything that had just happened. They were too close. In fact, it would be a long time before they started fitting all the pieces of the puzzle. For them, there was just this reoccurring sense of helplessness, the shame, the denials and the desertions and the fear. They did not know what had happened. They did not know what was going to happen to them. So John begins by telling us what the enemies had done to him. They had done the worst to Jesus. Death is the greatest enemy that all mankind has faced. And they had viciously mocked Jesus, beat him, whipped him, everything they could do before they killed him. And finally they had killed him. And now he was dead and in a grave. But that was Friday. Very early on Sunday morning, the dark clouds were obliterated the sadness and shame and disgrace. And John tells us the story of how that happened. Isaiah 35.10 says, And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing everlasting joy, will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That's a, actually a depiction of what heaven will be for Christians leaving this tired old earth. But heaven becomes more real with the resurrection. The first thing that happens is the discovery of an empty tomb. Now, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, there are two secret disciples. One is Nicodemus. You remember we met him in the book of John. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't reveal himself, or he probably would have been severely persecuted. But deep down, he has come to realize Jesus is the Son of God. There's another secret disciple. He's a very wealthy man. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. These two very wealthy men, very prestigious, who won't be prestigious anymore. So they've come out, identified themselves as followers of Christ. They go to Pilate, they ask for the body, and they receive it. Joseph has a tomb, and it hasn't even been used. Tombs were actually dug out of the rock, and there were ledges, like beds. And they carried Jesus' body to the tomb. Now, they are under the clock because they can't work with Jesus' body after the sun goes down because that is the beginning of the Sabbath. So they carry Jesus' body and a hundred pounds of spices because the Jews do not embalm 
and they, they don't use coffins. They, they have strips of, of cloth, and they, put, they rub the spices, and then they rub, they wrap. Another layer of spices, they wrap. They wrap everything but the head. We'll talk about that in a little, in a little while. So let's begin John. Instead of reading it all together, I'm going to break it up and read it. John chapter 20. This is John's version of the resurrection. I'll refer to the other disciples minimally so we get the full picture here, but mostly John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, all four disciples begin by talking about the women. You know this is a true account because women were the most oppressed group of people on the face of the earth at that time, even close to slave status. They had no voice. They were not allowed to be witnesses. So if you really wanted to tell a story that was going to be believable, you would leave women out. But all four of the disciples include the women as the first witnesses. There were at least four women. They're not exactly the same four women that were at the cross. Matthew mentions Mary Magdalene. She was at the cross. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the cross. But Mark tells us Salome was present, and Luke indicates Joanna. These are the four women. They take off. It's still dark. They're heading to the tomb. They probably had followed. There's indication that they followed Joseph and Nicodemus, so they knew where the tomb was, but nothing, nothing could be done. They saw the hurried way that Jesus was prepared, his body. They had talked to them and were planning on coming back very early on Sunday morning to finish the job and do it right to prepare Jesus' body. But when they come, the stone is rolled away, so they have all kinds of questions. Immediately, they ask themselves, has someone broken into the tomb? They have no idea. It, it doesn't even penetrate their mind that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. There isn't one single disciple that had that thought because it's so foreign. If you or I had been there, we wouldn't have had it either. Not one of the disciples, not these women. It never penetrates their mind. As Joseph of Arimathea, did he change his mind? Does he have another tomb somewhere else? Has someone broken in? Where are the soldiers? So finally, the women decide to inform the disciples. And Mary Magdalene is the one who goes back. We pick up the story in verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. John refers to himself all through here as the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Not one thought that he's resurrected. Now, on having received this news from Mary Magdalene, Peter and John react. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over. Now that word looked. We're going to investigate that in just a minute. Looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came Along behind him, went straight into the tomb. He saw, and that word saw, we're going to investigate that. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. So, as I mentioned, 
The Jewish practices of burial were completely distinct to all the nations around them. No cremation and no embalming the way the Egyptians did. They wrapped them as I described. But they stopped the wrapping right here at the lower shoulders and they wrapped the head very loosely the way you would wrap a turban. That's the why when Jesus stopped the procession, the widow of Nain and the burial of her son and Jesus raised him from the dead, he was able to speak. And why Lazarus was able to speak. Because this process is how you mummify, you make a mummy. But they did not do that to the head. You, it wasn't tight, and it did not have all the spices. So in verse 5, he bent over. This is John. So John outruns Peter, but when he gets to the tomb, he, he stops. He doesn't go in. Peter is the one in authority here. Peter's the boss wherever he's at, all right? And everybody always gives preference, kind of like the, the, there was a meeting and the CEO come in late and somebody was sitting in his seat and, and one, of the, one of the assistants says, oh no, sir, someone's got your seat. And the CEO said, look, wherever I sit is the head of the table. So Peter was that kind of guy and John is giving him preference. So he stops, Peter goes in. But when John arrived at there waiting on Peter, he looks, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there it did not go in. So th this word, looked, in Greek is blepo, and it simply means that the act of seeing. So he saw the wrap that was around Jesus' body, perfectly there. And even the wrap around his head was still in the form, as if the body was there, as if Jesus was laying there. That's what he could see from the outside. Then Simon Peter, verse 6, who was behind him derived and went into the tomb and he saw. And the word saw there is theorecho, which we get our word theater. And this is Peter's studies. He's looking more intently at what he can see. Then in verse 6, then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw, this is Peter studying, the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around his head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw, he saw and believed. Now the word saw here is different from the first word. That's blepo, where he, John just sees. Now the same word saw, but it's a different word in Greek. It's Oracle, which means see with understanding. You, you, somebody is showing you something. You say, I, I, don't, I don't understand how this works. And so somebody shows you and you go, oh, yeah, now I see. So the first one is, I see. The next one is, oh, now I see. The, the second see has an understanding. I see, I, John is saying, I see and I believe. John is actually the first disciple to believe that Jesus is resurrected. When it says he saw and believed, John's the first one of all the millions and hundreds of millions of people who believe Jesus' resurrection. John saw and believed. John Stott says the body was literally vaporized as it became something wonderful and new. As I said, all of that linen is still in place. 
the napkin, or this part that was very loosely around his head, is nicely folded up, and the other part is just there. You can just see John in his mind saying to Peter, maybe he said it out loud, Peter, don't you see? He's not there. He's gone. Nobody took him. This stone has been removed so we could come in and see this. He's alive, Peter. Maybe you haven't gotten to that place like John where you saw and believed. I hope today will be that place where you get there, that you actually believe that Jesus arose from the dead. This moment for John was a moment of victory because he understands what God has done. Kind of like at the end of the, the Red Sea, when God had parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel and it was all over with, they couldn't help but praise God. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. God had hurled death off of his son. Psalm, for he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts through the bars of iron. Death is that thing that is unbreakable, unstoppable. But it didn't stop Jesus. Now, the first person to meet the resurrected Christ is Mary Magdalene. That's amazing. Because she is a woman. She is a woman who had been a very sinful woman. And yet she's the first one who gets the privilege of meeting Jesus. So Mary, she was at the tomb first. She ran back. I'm assuming that the other women followed her, but at a walking pace, she ran. Peter and John kind of leave her in the dust. They run to the tomb. She follows them back. They get to the tomb and evidently take back what they have seen and discovered and go back and start talking with the other disciples because this is the kind of thing you have to process. Mary is left there. The other women probably are gone. She's left there by herself. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb. Now follow me here. Nobody's there but Mary now. She's, she's been there. She's gone. She's back. Disciples have been there. They're gone. Other women have been there. They're gone. She's by herself. She's bending over. She's looking into the tomb. And what does she see? Two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been. So as I said, it's a ledge carved out of the rock, kind of like a rock bed. So on one end is an angel, and on the other end is an angel. She's looking at them, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Now, at this point, it doesn't say so, but it kind, of, it kind of feels like that one of the angels indicated with his hand or something to turn around, because look how the next verse starts. At this, she turned around. So I think one of the angels kind of went, ever how angels do, I'm not sure, but <laughs> he got her to turn around because she turns around, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Still, the idea that Jesus could be resurrected just doesn't enter their mind. She's staring at Jesus. But the, the, it's impossible to believe that a dead person could be alive. But she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Jesus, that had to be incredible for him. 
He's saying to Mary Magdalene, who are you looking for, Mary? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She still doesn't recognize. And then Jesus says, Mary, that's it. She recognizes his voice. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then she grabs him, falls on her face, grabs him. The other disciples, the, the other gospels describe this in a little more detail. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What an incredible moment. And Mary, Mary got that first. The disciples, their heads are swimming. They, they, they're so lost. John is the only one who has believed. He's trying to tell them, I don't know what, what you guys are thinking, but he's alive. I don't know where he is. Mary's already seen him. Now, Jesus decides to go and appear to his disciples. Now, you have to remember, Jesus now has a glorified body. All right. We don't know too much about these glorified bodies, but we can learn a lot from just watching Jesus. Now, I've ran into a few doors in my time, and it hurts. All right. He was like, man, I didn't know that door was closed, especially like, you know, sliding glass windows. Those can be very hard on your head. When you don't know that it's actually closed, you go through them. Jesus could walk through closed doors. He could walk through walls. He's going to do it twice in this chapter. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, the first one to say this. And she told them that he had said these things to her on the evening of that first day of the week. So now he had been resurrected early in the morning, and now it's Sunday night. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with Doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now let's let that sink in. The doors are locked because they're totally fearful. I mean, if they did that to Jesus, they could do it to us. Jesus appears. They don't even see him walk through the door, or I don't know how he does it. Long time before Star Wars ever came up with that stuff, Jesus was doing it. And he's standing there and he says, Shalom. That one word means all four of those in English. Peace be with you. Shalom. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It was hard for the disciples. At first, this is Sunday night, trying to put the reports, the empty tomb, and then we got Mary here. I mean, did she really see him or was that a figment of her imagination? John is arguing that Jesus really did, but they're, they're trying to process everything. And then boom, he walks into the room. There was no doubting now. Luke says they still did not believe because of joy and amazement. It was almost too much for their minds. They didn't believe because of, of doubt the joy and amazement of actually seeing it was so hard for their minds to process it. It's like their minds were going a mile an hour trying to process what they were seeing and hearing. And then Jesus spoke these words to them. 
And when he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Very intimate words. We'll go into those at another time. But there's one disciple missing. Good old Thomas. He doesn't happen to be there. His personality is he'd like to figure this out on his own. He doesn't need all these other guys around talking. He'd just like to be by himself. And he's out there trying to figure it out by himself. Yeah, I know there's some Thomases here. Don't raise your hand. Some Mrs. Thomases. And now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So he's out there on his own. He comes back. The disciples tell him what happened. And Thomas says, great, man, I can't wait to see him. This is fantastic, guys. No. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. This is one stubborn guy. He has been three years with these other disciples. Would they lie to him about something? Of course not. He's probably heard Mary Magdalene tell what she did. He's heard John tell. Then all of them, not believing it, I'm not hearing it. There's no way. Unless he appears to me. And I actually, I want to look at his hand. I want to look at his feet. I want to look at his side. I want to examine it. Then I'll believe. So the Lord makes Thomas wait a whole week. Had to be a pretty difficult week for Thomas. He's dealing with doubt. There's a reason we call him Doubting Thomas. A week later, actually eight days, the disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. I love it that the doors were locked. John just keeps putting that in there. Boy, I'm looking forward to one of those glorified bodies. Anybody have trouble... Getting ready this morning? Getting your body to cooperate? Well, with these kind of bodies, you just walk through the door, walk through the wall. There's no aging, there's no pain. This is a body made for eternity. I preached a funeral yesterday, and it was a pretty big group. And I, I usually tell people at funerals, every person in here is aware of your mortality. Even if you don't really realize it, you are. You're at a funeral. And there's a dead loved one here. And that is a loud red flag saying, your time's coming. Our mortality is so real, it's out there. And yet in the story of the resurrection, we're talking about one who put on immortality. Who left his corruptible body in the grave, but God turned it into an incorruptible body. And he promises to do the exact same thing for us. That's why the resurrection is so powerful. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. He knew what Thomas said. Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Look at Thomas' response. Then Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He may have been slow to believe, but he wasn't slow to grasp the reality of the resurrected Christ at that moment. And Thomas spent the rest of his life declaring 
the power of the resurrection to every person he had the opportunity to speak to. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John is so overwhelmed at this point as he's writing this gospel on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, I have written just a part of the story of Jesus. And I think he would say the other three have done the same. It would be impossible for us to tell you everything Jesus did and who he was. He says it like this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What a powerful statement. The resurrection gave those disciples joy, unbelievable joy. It gives all of us joy. In a world that is so sick, a world that is so broken, a world that is so sad, our joy comes from the resurrection of Jesus and the promise that we too will be resurrected. Back to Psalm 30. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Listen to Jesus speak in the last book of the Bible. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, you don't have to wait till your body is resurrected to experience that joy. You experience that joy the minute you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If a very, very wealthy person, a multi-billionaire, said to you, here's a check, I'm signing it, you fill it out for whatever you need. I want you to take care of all your bills, you need a house, you need a car, and you know this person has the money, would you be afraid to cast the check? I'm afraid that check might bounce. I'm afraid I might be embarrassed if I if you know the person has the money and they gave you the check, you're going to cash it. I would, anyway. I've heard of people stashing the checks in their drawer, but I'm not one of them. I would cash it. Well, Jesus has done that with us. You haven't received your resurrection yet, but you can live as if it is a fact. It will happen. To everyone who believes. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. It's a sad world and you won't find real joy in this world no matter how hard you try. But this joy comes from knowing that your Savior overcame death, overpowered death. God raised Jesus from the dead. And in that one act, he validated everything in Christianity and gave us the hope for our own resurrection. And in doing that, our wailing, our sadness, our unbelievable frustration and uselessness and helpless is gone. It's turned into dancing. He removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we know Jesus is resurrected. As we review the story of the resurrection in the eyes of John, 
how easy it was for John to believe. He simply saw and believed. It was much more difficult for Thomas, but they both believed how patient you were to come back and give Thomas that time. I pray that every person here would have that same opportunity to embrace you, Lord, as their Lord and their Savior. We all go through this process of doubt in our lives, trying to figure out that these disciples, when they knew and when they believed, their lives were changed forever. And the hope they take with them, they would face death, they would all die, but they would go to that grave with the hope that one day their body would be resurrected and it would become a glorified body just like Jesus, never subject to all the diseases of a mortal body because their body would be immortal. Not a corruptible body, but an incorruptible body. Not a perishable body, but an imperishable one. I invite you to embrace Jesus as your Savior and your resurrected Lord today. Pray with me. Lord, I am moved by this story of the resurrection. I believe that you were resurrected from the dead, that your Father raised you up from the dead. I believe the disciples came to believe and embrace your resurrection, and they were changed, and they found their joy in that. I want to find my joy and my hope in the resurrected Christ. And therefore, I repent of my sin. I turn away from everything that is sinful in my life, and I embrace you today. And I want to serve you and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Please greet each other today before you go.